Hello and welcome to the Sonic Cinema Podcast. My name is Brian Scuttle. Thank you for joining me at www.sonic-cinema.com as well as the Sonic Cinema Podcast YouTube channel. You can also check us out on Google, Apple, and Spotify podcasts. And also check out the Sonic Cinema Patreon. Uh, we're more or less wrapped up for the year over there. Um, I just uh, shared with uh, some of my patrons my 10 favorite new watches as well as my five favorite rewatches of uh, 2020 because I had a lot of time to catch up with uh, older movies, uh, whether they were ones I had seen for the first time this year or ones that I was watching after a while. And uh, that's all at patreon.com backslash cinema. We, there are only a handful of movies left in the uh, class of 1999 that I did not get to last year. And uh, one of those is one that I've been really looking forward to talking about is Anthony Minghella's The Talented Mr. Ripley. Join me to talk about the movie is uh, somebody who's been on here quite a bit, and I'm looking forward to the discussion again today, uh, actor Timothy J. Cox. Thank you very much for joining me. Thank you, Brian. Always uh, happy to be back. I remember uh, when this when this first came out, this, this like a lot of movies that came out in 1999, there were this came out with a lot of fanfare, and part of that was because of the fact that this was Minghella's uh, follow-up to The English Patient, which had basically swept the Oscars a few mm -hmm. years before. Sure. And then you think about the cast. This has uh, Matt Damon as Tom Ripley, uh, Gwyneth Paltrow, fresh off of her Oscar win, Kate uh, Blanchett, who I actually, when I first rewatched the movie last year, I'd completely forgotten that she was in this for some reason. And she was coming off of her first Oscar nomination for Elizabeth. And then you had Jude Law, who ended up being Oscar nominated in this movie. And one of the things that's so just beautiful about this movie to watch, apart from the fact that it's just a beautiful movie, is the way it really just, it plays like one of the most elegant thrillers that, Alfred Hitchcock never made. And it feels well, that's, very Hitchcockian yeah. in, in, in that. It is uh, definitely, I mean, Patricia Highsmith, uh, who um, wrote a series, I think, of five books with, uh, with Tom Ripley, the character of Tom Ripley, um, may, you may not know that she also wrote Strangers on a Train, mm -hmm. which, of course, uh, Alfred Hitchcock adapted into the, uh, the famous movie. This is a... Um, an elegant in the style of Alfred Hitchcock. I mean, if, if this were done in the 1950s, I mean, you could see Grace Kelly playing uh, the role that, uh, that Gwyneth Paltrow played, or even seeing someone like, uh, you know, I mean, you could cast it, you know, very like Montgomery Clift, like someone, I mean, just immediately comes to mind or a Brando or a James Dean, you know, playing Tom Ripley. Um, mm. This is an extraordinary film. I mean, and, in, in a, and, in that class of 99, of just the, the movies that, I mean, of course, we discussed The Insider, and then you have American Beauty, and The Green Mile, and The Sixth Sense, and many, many, many others. This one really stands out just because um, it's just, it, it's an elegant, classically classic thriller. And, I mean, it was a controversial uh, novel when it came out in the 1950s because of, you know, 
the kind of uh, it deals with the fact that um, uh, uh, homoerotic, uh, you know, feelings that uh, the character of Tom may have for Dickie. And back in the 1950s, that was a, a taboo subject. Um, and it's just I mean, it, in every respect, this is just it's a textbook example in just in great movie making. You have the wonderful cinematography of John Seal, edited beautifully by the great Walter Murch. Uh, Anthony Minghella, like you said, coming off his Oscar win, he just peppered it with this amazing cast, which also included Philip Seymour Hoffman and yeah. uh, Philip Baker Hall, the late, great James Rebhorn. And it's just, and it's just elegantly uh, shot. Mm. And um, it's just, uh, it's just a beautiful film. And um, it's amazingly enough, it's, it's actually a very, a, a, it's it's a wonderful exploration of the people who live the quote unquote charmed life. Like Tom Ripley wants so much to be Dickie Greenleaf that mm -hmm. realizes that Dickie Greenleaf himself has, you know, his own issues, uh, which of course we'll get into. Uh, but no, this is a, this is an extraordinary movie. I'm looking forward to talking about it. Yeah. And uh in addition to uh, the other people that you mentioned, there's also just an absolutely gorgeous score by uh, Gabriel Yared. Um, oh yes, in in this movie, and I I've always been a fan of the score. It's one of the things that I've I've really appreciated over the years, and it goes so well with the uh, cinematography of John Seale and the way this movie is lit, and the way that the the setting of Italy, just the fact that this is such an such an elegant movie and the fact that it really it really um <clears throat> the there's a lightness to the way this movie is shot that is old very much old school technicolor like you said. I mean it could very easily have been in that Alfred Hitchcock fifties uh, with like To Catch a Thief and the man who knew too much and uh, yeah. even North by Northwest. But one of the things that's so great about this is the fact that you've got this absolutely gorgeous setting of Italy and it contrasts with the fairly dark story that we're uh, seeing unfold. And that's, that's one of the great things. I mean, they're the direction for Mingella and the cinematography are, so much of a key to this movie's success and a big part of that is how they contrast stand in contrast to the narrative that's being uh, told well that it gives the appearance that it's going to be this uh, you know charming and elegant and that all along you see i mean and in the casting of matt damon who has this boyish charm you know it, it, it completely stuns you when the acts of violence that take place and just how um, how committed he is to wanting to be Dickie Greenleaf and yeah. to be in that world that he is willing to do anything for it. And I think that's what makes um, it, 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 it shocks you like, oh, wow, what happened? What just mm -hmm. happened? Like, um, that's the mark of a good thriller. Um you know, it just, it catches you by surprise. Um, and, you know, I mean, and that's, uh, I mean, I know that when the movie came out, there was a lot of criticisms about, criticism about the casting of Matt Damon. I mean, the role was turned down by Leonardo DiCaprio. Um, 
I think Matt Damon is outstanding in the film. Yeah. I think the the boyish charm that he has, that he's able to get into the world using his charm, using the smile, using the awkwardness, that um, he, it's a performance. Mm-hmm. That uh, And I think that, um, you know, as they find in the film, the, the other characters kind of underestimate him. And that's that's the sinister. And he doesn't do anything where it's over the top. Um, he just... There's a subtlety to it um, that that uh, it's it, it's it's unnerving. I mean, I think Matt Damon is one of is one of the is one of the best, and he's one of the smartest actors in uh, in the industry. You just look at the, the the choices that he's made, and I think this was one of his. I don't know if this was one of his follow ups to Goodwill Hunting, yeah. Um, which which of course this is a very very different role. For him, because in Goodwill Hunting, he had the kind of the swagger, the you know the the tough guy. Tom Ripley uh, on the surface, you know, you look at him, um, you know, he's he's a very kind of gawky, kind of awkward, uh, you know. As Dickie Greenleaf says, "You're you're so white." I mean, like you know, he doesn't uh, he doesn't get out, uh, and you know, uh, so it's a wonderful uh, contrast and just showing the range uh, that Matt Damon could bring um, to a character, but. Uh, as we learn, as we watch the movie, um, he is not to be uh, underestimated because he is. There's this obsession. He yeah. is going to be a part of this world. Not a, not even just a part of this world, but he is going to be Dickie Greenleaf. And that is uh, just to watch that transformation. That's it's it's terrifying to watch. Yeah, and it's it's interesting because of the fact that it's like it you almost. There, there's a certain part of you where, when he first tells the, when he first tells his initial lie that yes, he went to Princeton with Dicky to, uh, to his father. Yeah. And then you you start to wonder, like, as the film goes on, it's like, it's obvious once he's, uh, once he's ingratiated himself with. Dicky and with Marge in their lifestyle that they're living that he very much wants to that to be his life but it's it's interesting to see the it's interesting to wonder whether that was necessarily his whether it was necessarily his intention straight out of the gate or whether it was just like oh he's an opportunist he's going to get this all expenses paid trip to Italy to do this for, you know, his father and we'll see what happens. And it's, it's interesting that you don't really get that laid out in the movie. It's very ambiguous, but it becomes less ambiguous, but his motives become less ambiguous. Um, once he, once he meets up with Dickie, uh, played by the fantastic Jude Law, who mm-hmm. was Oscar nominated for this movie, and uh, he he really starts to live that that good life that Dickie is living. Absolutely. I mean, the thing about that it, it's Tom Ripley was a guy who was who's been waiting for this opportunity, and when he gets it, he you know lie after lie after lie after lie and. And the amazing thing is, you know, if 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 we and any of us encountered anyone like a Tom Ripley in our life or whatever, or or read about this in the newspaper, we'd be like, oh my God, this guy is insane, you know. Mm-hmm. But in the movie, 
I found myself in watching the movie again, and I remember when I saw the film, that while he is what he is, I could not help but want him to get away with it. Yeah. I, I was, I didn't want him to get caught because he was so compelling that like, I mean, of course you always want, uh, you know, the villain to get their comeuppance in the end, but with him, because the character was so compelling and so interesting and willing to just, you know, like what a life that he has to live because he has to constantly be, you know, living the lie, living the lie and ratcheting up and like, you know, well, he told this lie that he has to do this. And it's I think that's is what is engaging about the character and and gal and about this this particular uh film adaptation um that you just i don't know if if I would use the phrase cheer him on but you do you don't want him to get caught yeah and that's and that's i mean that's the mark of just a good thriller i mean like you know you have uh and Hannibal Lecter it's kind of uh the same way I mean he obviously if we all met a Hannibal Lecter we would be like I want to get out of here yeah but it's almost like that's what makes a compelling uh you know I mean it's kind of like you know why in, in the case of Shakespeare like why Macbeth is so interesting or mm-hmm. why why Iago is so interesting you of what they can get away with you want to see what they can get away with next you want to see how far they can take it and 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 Tom takes it I mean, like there are literally moments where he has to think on the fly of a lie, and he's got to just trying to coordinate and do all of that in in the moment. It's uh, it's extraordinary, and you just see the tension ratcheted up constantly. Well, and that's where casting Damon in the role is uh, is so important because of the fact that you want him to get away with it. That that's that's an important part of getting that. Um, getting that point across, and but at the same time, and I mean, we'll talk about it later. It's like you do get to the ending, and you 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 feel more for the character in a way because of the fact that he he feels lost. Yeah, he, you know he he's not, and and one of the things that's so interesting about the characters that um. What he does in this movie is very much sociopathic. I mean, you really oh, sure. not thinking thinking of anybody else but himself. But at the same time, is it just did that sociopathic nature of him just come out of this particular situation, or is it something that's that it's just part of his nature in general? I think it's probably. I mean, I would suspect it's part of his nature because yeah. it, it's 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 survival. This is how he survives. He can't survive in his own skin, so he has to, you know, put himself in the shoes of, um, you know, of uh, of Dickie Greenleaf or to be Marge or even a, in a, to a lesser extent to, to Freddie because he's yeah. envious of what Freddie has. Freddie has this connection to Dickie that no matter what, Tom is never going to have. Mm-hmm. Um, and that 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 sticks at Tom. And of course, you know, uh, what happens to Freddie in the film. And then also to, I think there is, um, I think that he has a resentment to, to Marge because of what Marge has, the connection, uh, the romantic, the sexual relationship mm-hmm. that Marge and Dickie have that Tom is resentful of. And it comes down to, I mean, you know, I'm not a, a psychologist, but, you know, just, you know, watching enough movies especially thrillers reading enough of them you just suspect that ultimately in the end what 
is they're looking for is love of yeah. any kind. But love, I don't know if love is enough for Tom Ripley. I think no. love and to kind of if if he could, if he could just erase who he really is and just be you know, the people that he wants to be, the people, the, the Dickies, the Marges, the, you know, other people that he encounters uh, in his, in his travels in, in Italy. And also the Tom Ripley in the, in the subsequent novels and stories. Um, you know, I mean, Patricia, Patricia Highsmith wrote this character over five, five uh, novels. So we see the character age and grow older um, over time. So, you you see that he's always in survival mode. Mm-hmm. You know he's he's always on the run, always in survival. The thing is, he's he's smart. He's always ahead of everyone else. Even when he has to lie on the fly, he's yeah. always ahead. And that's I think that's where you know the sociopathic uh, aspect of it comes into play. Is that it's just you don't know like. Uh, he always has something in the treasure chest ready to go. Mm-hmm. And that's like, you know, that's, that's a mind that you don't, you don't, you don't want to mess with that person. Yeah. No. And it's seeing, and there's, there's a fascinating, there's a fa- fascinating compare and contrast to be made between uh, Tom and Dickie, because it's like, they both, they both, in a way, they both represent two very different things. Not just in personality, but also in the lives they live. Because Matt, because Tom Ripley really is an example of a mediocre white guy sort of just failing upwards. Like he manages mm-hmm. to fail upwards. Like you know, he he gets himself into this situation. He succeeds, you know, and he continues to move up the ladder. Where it's like, you know, with uh, Dicky, he's very much. He he's very much the personification of white privilege, which we wouldn't have necessarily considered it. They wouldn't have necessarily considered it white privilege in that way. But he feels at that point. But he feels like he can do anything. Oh, and he's incredibly manipulative. I mean, the what he does, you know, he the young girl that he impregnates and rejects her, and mm-hmm. she, you know, uh, drowns herself. I mean, just you know, you you whenever I wonder, I'm just kind of like oh like has that kind of thing happened before or you know that you realize that i remember asking myself when i last viewed it like god tom why do why do you want to be this guy yeah you know why do you want to be this guy so and i think that's the kind of thing that the i don't know if tom comes to a realization of that that maybe this guy is not on the surface, you know, he's very, he's a handsome, he's a very, you know, he's a pretty boy, you know, he has all of this money, he has, uh, he can get any woman he wants, he has power, and, uh, but really, you peel away the onion, and Dickie is, uh, is not that far off from, uh, from Tom. No, no. I mean, basically, it's, it's the expatriate lifestyle. I mean, it's just this idea of, like, going to Europe, getting away from your family, getting away from your life yeah, in the States and just living free without really any sort of consequences. It's like, sure. I mean, honestly, I mean, look, Dickie's life is appealing to me in a lot of ways. But at the same time, it's like it's that manipulative nature of him that comes through. And that's part of where that's part of what's so 
important about having somebody like Damon, who's just naturally charming, and at that point was still very much kind of a kid. Yeah. And, um, you know, then you have Jude Law, who's not really much older than Damon at all, but he, he, he has, he, you get this sense that he, he understands the world a little bit more than Ripley does as Dickie. And, yeah. Uh, but you also, compared to the charm of Damon, you have the narcissism of Dickie, where it's like, even though you do get the sense that he, he, he ultimately cares for Marge. He also, you know, we we come to know that he's had had an affair with a local young woman who he's gotten pregnant, and he's rejected that. But it's because and it's because of the fact that he just doesn't want responsibility. Yeah, and, he just uh, rejects the the responsibility. Yeah, and you know he well he wants he wants the privilege he wants the power but you know he. Uh, looks at relationships and looks at people as kind of like tissues, you know, you get your use out of them and then you throw them away. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that's really interesting about Marge and uh, Paltrow is very good in this movie. It's like she, she's because of her her lifestyle brand. I feel like people kind of uh, forget the fact that she's actually a really good actress. I think this is the best. I think in my opinion, I think this is the best performance that she's given on film. Because uh, she and she fits like her look, like mm. she just fits so perfectly into that time and place, like the classic Hollywood, um, the look, like the kind of the Grace Kelly or you know um, um, this. I, I think uh, she's perfectly cast yeah. in this. Um, I don't know if I would quite call it her her best role. It's definitely up there, but it's funny because you mentioned you mentioned that Grace Kelly look. It's like. She actually played when a year before this. She actually played the Grace Kelly role in the uh, A Perfect Murder, which was a remake of Dow M for Murder. Right. Yeah. Scott. Mm-hmm. So, um, but yeah, she she is just very good. And one of the things that makes her character so interesting in that is that she's very much a realist when it comes to Dickie. Like, she yeah. Is, she doesn't really have any illusions when it comes to Dickie, but at the same time. You can, she can, she's also very, you can tell that her behavior, his behavior has an impact on her. Sure. And that's in seeing the fact that basically, basically, you know, having Dickie sort of ghost her after Tom is, Tom has killed him. And the fact that it's like Tom has basically made himself this sort of intermediary with her between her and Dickie, who's no longer live is just it. You can see where the uh, you, you can see where the tension in the character and the anxiety in the character really is going to get ratcheted up to where when she does have her outburst near the end of the movie, when she comes to start to realize uh, the nature, the real nature of Tom, it, it, it is palpable. And the thing is, I think for for Marge, for Quinneth Paltrow, the character, um, I think she is the one good thing in Dickie's life because she mm-hmm. loves him. She loves him 
warts and faults and all. I mean, she, you know, it's like you said, like, you know, she is fully aware of who he is and what he, uh, that he's, uh, he's had affairs, but, uh, she loves him. Mm-hmm. And that, uh, and like, and like you said, she is a realist, but she, she can't turn away because, you know, she doesn't give on, up on, uh, on who she loves. And I think, Philip Seymour Hoffman's character of Freddie, I think he loves Dickie too. I think he and Marge are the two most important relationships yeah. in his life. Yeah. M- Marge is the love, you know, that that she could probably like she could cradle Dickie in her in, in her arms and create the comfort. Whereas Freddie is the mischievous, the fun side, the you know, um, and that side also. Um, and just also just to speak about Philip Seymour Hoffman, of course, you know, um, left us way, way too soon. Yes. Th- this movie, when this movie came out, this was around the time when he was really starting to blow up. Mm-hmm. He, had, he had done Boogie Nights and, you know, he had done Happiness and then this Mm-hmm. And then he just he just took off, and it's not a uh, it's not a big part, but he makes such an impact, and it's just like an example of like of actors who even in the smallest part can make such uh, a profound impact, not just for the movie for the performance, but for the world. Like yeah. I think he is. I mean, it's it's very clear that to me at least that Freddie and Dicky have probably had some kind of physical relationship yeah. and that, and that, uh, but that they're both very similar. They have their fun and they don't make a, uh, they don't make a thing out of it. They mm-hmm. just, they just do it. Like they just, they have fun and they clearly love each other. Um, and I think that's a threat. I think that's a threat to Marge. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a th- obviously a threat to Tom. And it's just interesting to just watch the, uh, the, the relationship. Uh, the relationships between all, how it uh, how it makes the other characters uh, feel throughout the movie. Yeah, and and I mean, I I think you know, and Freddie is without doubt one of Philip Seymour Hoffman's just best creations as far as the way he builds the character in the movie is just fantastic. Sure. And um, yeah, I mean, I, he 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 left us way too soon, and this is, but yeah, this was near this was around the time he was starting to get noticed more and more by audiences and um yeah i mean you 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 and you you mentioned the uh you know the the idea of tension between he and between freddie and marge but the thing is i i think that it feels it's less it's less pronounced i think because of the fact that it's like freddie it feels like with when it comes to Freddie, Marge, and Dickie, there have been boundaries that are sort of set, and like Marge is more accepting of Freddie because of the fact that Freddie is very much, you know, Freddie is very much who he's going to be. Like he's yeah. very straightforward about who he is, and it's very blunt. Yeah, and it's kind of interesting because of the fact that at the beginning of the movie when Tom first meets with Dickie and Marge, he's relatively honest with Dickie as well. Mm -hmm. I mean, not in the sense, you know, he lies about the fact that they went to school together, but he's very upfront about why he's there. And, you know, he, he, 
he's not afraid to just tell Dickie, it's like, look, this is why I'm here. And, you know, in even though... And the interesting thing is he, he doesn't play off, even when he lies about being at Princeton, he says, well, it's like, I... You know, it's like, well, I don't... I certainly heard of you, which is which gives you a little bit of that buffer to realize that it's like he knows enough in this situation to play up the lie about being at Princeton, but not feel, but not make it seem like they were good friends or good buddies at Princeton. Right. Yeah. So enough of enough of the truth to get him in the door, but also enough of the lie to help him along the way. And uh, but yeah, I mean, with with Freddie, it's like he's completely who he is. It's like he's, yeah, you know, and you can see where. Freddie is somebody who is—he's almost, almost like Dicky. He's almost the life of the party. Like he, yeah, <laughs> but he's he's fun. But I think also, you know, as we find that obviously he holds Tom in contempt. Yeah, because Tom represents—he's an interloper. Mm-hmm. That like, I mean, Fr- think about Freddie. Freddie's the life of the party, but Freddie also. He knows it. He knows who Tom is. He knows, like, I mean, not the, the the con aspect, but he knows that you're just you're just trying. You you don't belong in this world. Yeah. You know, like yeah. the world of the charmed. Um, Dickie and Marge may not see through it, but I do. And when it's you, like when you think about that. When you think about that scene on the uh, where the four of them are on the boat, and mm-hmm. Tom is peeping on uh, Dickie and Marge. Yeah. Low and Freddie catches him, and it's like he he doesn't he doesn't like he 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 makes it aware that he knows what Tom is doing without really like getting overly upset. It's like and did he is that something he's necessarily going to tell Dicky later? Probably, maybe not. It's like that's something maybe he'll leave for himself. Yeah, I think you know, and and Freddie also you know if. You know, he witnessed that, and it's like, okay, I'm going to put that in the treasure chest because he knows that that's going to. If he does that, he's going to do something else, and eventually, you know, I mean, Freddie might find of a way, you know, to manipulate Tom. I yeah. mean, it's like, it, it's the characters that they're, they're all they're just they're. I think they all have their issues in the film. <laughs> I think, but uh, really uh, uh, compelling. I think also one of the things that that's really worth noting um, about the movie, and I think we touched on it a little bit. Of course, just Italy itself, the art direction, the the you know, the way it looks, it just gives this appearance that the world that Tom Ripley is entering is just this is everything that he's ever wanted. Yeah, you know this the elegant, the parties, you know the the night drinking, you know the fancy, uh, the cars, the wine, the you know the food. Um, I mean, it would be alluring to anybody, but it, it, again, it's it's always about peeling back the onion. Is that no, nothing is perfect, no one is perfect, and and maybe Tom doesn't care about that. Tom's like, well, you know, you know, it, at least the world. It may not be perfect, but at least it's. It's better than what I was in, because uh, yeah. I mean I think at the beginning of the movie, what was he like a a, a busboy or something like that? You know, so he I, was. So the first time we see him, he's playing a piano for a singer at this event that the Green 
that Greenleaf, uh, yeah, Greenleaf the, are uh, hosting. That's and that's right, how he yeah. meets the father. And um, then we see him after that. He goes to a bus boy. Uh, he he goes to a bus by boy job. You get the impression that he basically is just doing odd jobs for money and stuff like that. And that's sort of how he gets gets along in life. See, I always got the impression that like when in the beginning there he was playing the piano at the Greenleaf party. I said he like he begged. Like, you know, he, he, he saw, like, this party was, like, in the newspaper, this party is going to be happening because I got to get in. That's my foot in the door. Because I think it's like, you know, these these cons, like, con artists, you know, it's elaborate and it's, yeah. it's long planning. And all they need is one little thing to help them in the door. And I think that is like the springboard. Like he gets in the door with Dickie's father, Dickie's father, uh, you know, like he befriends him and says, Hey, I knew your son. And in the elite, you know, like he sees Tom, the father sees Thomas like, Hey, you know, I can send you there and you can keep an eye on Dickie and make sure that, you know, and like just that, Ugh. it's like the, the con like even began even before the movie started, mm-hmm. I think. Well, and, and that's interesting because of the fact that you do see you do see the singer's initial pianist uh, after that initial scene, and it looks like he has a cast around his arm, so it does look yeah. like he was he was injured. Yeah, um, but yeah, I mean, just yeah, I mean, it's you you can definitely you can definitely uh, get that you know he's going Tom's going to take advantage of this situation. Sure, to, you know to to better get something better for himself and um you know you see that in it and you see that when uh he meets uh meredith at the uh at the airport as well and that yeah. is a uh, cape blanchett's character and it's interesting because of the fact that um we talked about this a little bit over uh messenger that this is not the first version of the talented Miss Ripley to hit no. movies because of the fact that in 1960, Renee Clement uh, directed Purple Noon, which is a relatively loose adaptation of talented Mr. Ripley. Mm-hmm. It's interesting because of the fact, and I bring that up now because of the fact that I actually just watched on Criterion Channel this morning, was able to uh, fit in before uh, we record this, and I had forgotten the about the fact that like there's no analogous character for Meredith in now, Meredith in that version. Yeah, Meredith uh does not appear in the book. Uh she was written for the Anthony Mangala specifically wrote that character for his adaptation because he wanted to work with Kate Blanchett, uh in, as anybody would want to. Yeah. Um <laughs> and she really adds something as well. You I I Instantly, you know, I just feel bad for her. I feel, oh, God, if this woman, if she only knew. But the thing is that she's so determined that I think, you know, she, uh, I think she's in love with Tom, I think. um, And that um, obviously it's it's a love that can never be. Yeah. Um, I remember the first time I saw the movie, the whole time, like, oh, God, Tom, please don't kill her. Don't kill her. Don't kill her. Don't kill her. That was the whole, like, the whole time just thinking just because I think she is probably probably the most innocent of, of the people that Tom encounters, like that she's just, you know, of, of 
happened to happens to meet Tom, but it's probably um, the most innocent, I guess. See, of I uh, say, you know, see, I would say that about Peter. I would actually say that about Peter. Yeah, that's um, true too. Meredith, Mer- no, but Meredith is is important because of the fact that that initial lie that he tells her that he is Dickie Greenleaf is is basically crucial to like everything that takes place after Tom kills Dickie because yeah. of the fact that it continues to be this cog in this story where it's like so she's aware of, she thinks he's Dickie but he's trying to he he's still got to be Tom for Marge and then Peter and Freddie. Yeah. And it's it's one of those things where it's like you do emp- but you do empathize with Meredith. That is absolutely true. And Kate Blanche has wonderful in the role. Mm-hmm. And um it's 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 interesting because of the fact that she is she's just as sympathetic as a character as Marge is. But she also, in her life, based on what we know of that character, she's much more somebody like Dickie, too, where it's like she's, you know, she's an expatriate who, you know, she comes from money and she wants to live in Europe. But she doesn't have that narcissistic personality that Dickie has. Yeah. She's just genuinely empathetic and fun to be around. Right. But uh, yeah, I mean Meredith is Meredith is a completely uh, sympathetic character in this movie, and I I I I seri- I can't believe I had forgotten the fact that Kate Blanchett was in this movie when I watched it again last year, <laughs> uh, because it's like oh my god, of course she was because it was <laughs> just I I for some I don't know why it didn't hit me, but yeah, she she is so good in this, and it's like. You you she don't because you don't see her for a while, and it's only after Tom kills Dicky that she starts to reappear in the narrative again. Yeah, and uh, but it's it's because of that it's it's for that um, contrast with what the con that he has to play with uh, Marge and Freddie versus the con that he, he has to play with Meredith as well. Mm-hmm. And the thing is, it's like I think if if things had not gone the way they went with Dicky, you could almost see. I don't know. Maybe you could almost see. I feel like, you know, he he definitely is envious of the life that Dicky has with Marge, and I think to a certain extent, he he does want that with Meredith. And you you do sort of get the impression that he he does kind of want that with Meredith, and so. That's why he just really, it's part of why he just leans into the Dickie persona. To give her something that would make her happy. Well, to give him something that, you know, he feels like, to, he it almost is like he wants to do Dickie's life better than yeah. he is doing, but he wants to do it with Meredith instead of Marge. Yeah, I think that's accurate, yeah. It's extraordinary. I mean, like the movie, it, uh, and of course the book is uh, all of the Patricia Highsmith books. I mean, they've been studied and dissected. Many of them have been made into other movies. Um, you know, you mentioned Purple Moon. Uh, Vin Vendors did the American Friend um, 
which was uh, Bruno Gans and Dennis Hopper mm-hmm. as uh, as Tom Ripley. And then, of course, we were discussing on Messenger talking about, about Ripley's Game, which I think is the last um, Highsmith novel with John Malkovich. And Malkovich was perfect, but yeah, it didn't I, have... It's yeah, it didn't while, have a... It's been a while since I had seen um, Ripley's Game, but yes, he he was really terrific in that movie. Well, and it didn't have a. Uh, I, I saw the movie. I was just going through a bargain bin at Blockbuster. That's how long ago I saw it, and I thought, "Oh, John Malkovich." And I, Ripley's Game. I, I immediately just thought, "How oh, it must be it." And I said, "Based on the the, the Tom Ripley," and um, it's it's a marvelous. Uh, and and Malkovich is perfect. But again, it goes to show like the character of Tom Ripley. He's always on the go. He never, when he even senses a little bit of danger, he reacts because mm-hmm. it's, you cannot leave anything to chance. Yeah. And that's, uh, that's the thing. It's like, you know, well, you know, you told this lie, you know, and if you get caught in it, well, you got to deal with it. And if, mm-hmm. and in his mind, you know, it's, um, if someone dies, it's just a casualty. Yeah. But it's, it's funny also by the time when you see Malkovich, the shyness you know, of the Tom Ripley and the first Ripley story, all of that is gone. He's a, he's very determined, very mm. cold, very, uh, I guess you could say almost emotionless. Like yeah. just, it's just, it's just a part of, um, you know, it's just, it's just part of the, it's just part of the game, part of the routine. Yeah. And that's, you know, I think that's what makes it, if you were to watch the town of Mr. Ripley and Ripley's game, um, back to back, you would see just the, uh, just the progression of this, uh, the character that's, it's just an extraordinary character. Yeah. And if you, if you're listening to this and you haven't watched, uh, Ripley's game, I, I, I definitely second, uh, Tim in, in recommending it because it is a, really interesting uh is is a really interesting in its own right uh tom ripley's story and uh yeah malkovich is fantastic in it yeah i want to say it came out in 2001 2002 yeah, maybe it a, yeah it was a couple yeah. of years after this and of course, I think it came out because the the talent of Mr. Ripley was a huge success. Forty million dollar budget made over a hundred million dollars at the box office. Um, and I think on the heels of that, they decided there was a, a newfound interest yeah. in um, Patricia Highsmith. Uh, sadly, she did not live to see us. She passed away in 1995. She had not lived to see um, this resurgence. But um, mm-hmm. no, it's. Uh, and I think in the history, I think she had stated that um, she was, she did like, I think she liked Purple Moon. I don't know. I mean, she, of course, there were changes to the, yeah. the, the script or to the story, but. Yeah, and as I was watching Purple Moon, I went to the uh, IMDb trivia, and she did, she did like the movie, and she loved the uh, lead performance, but she wasn't happy with the ending. And it's funny because of the fact that it's like it's it's really kind of funny because of the fact that I mean you would think you would almost think that to a certain extent a French version of the talented Mr. Ripley would end the way Mengele's film does and it would be an American version of Talented Mr. Ripley that would end the way the French one does. Yeah. Like, oh, he 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 doesn't get away with it. But in this one, he does, and I will admit, it's like I do think the ending of Bengala's film works a lot better, 
But I do think the reveal in Purple Noon is really effective, actually, in rewatching it this morning. Oh, sure. Well, and Alan Delon is, uh, I mean, uh, is, is outstanding in the film. Yeah. I, mean, I mean, he is, he is, uh, he's different than, uh, I mean, Damon's take on it because Alan, uh, is absolutely gorgeous, yeah. uh, in the movie and more, you wonder how this guy would, how would he have any problem, um, you know, living the life uh, or living like the charmed life. Mm-hmm. But uh, I mean, looks are uh, deceiving, I guess, but uh, now Renee Clement, it's, it's a, it's a marvelous uh, film. Uh, highly recommend it. Yeah. And it I, is currently and, on the criterion channel. If you yes. want to check it out. So no, but, uh, but no, I mean, it's a, uh, and, and sadly, you know, I don't know if um, in the film was it, the talent of Mr. Ripley was a successful enough that you wonder if they were going to revisit the other novels in the series. Yeah. Sadly, Anthony Mangel, I believe he passed in 2008, I believe. Yeah. And um, we didn't have a chance of that we lost a great, uh, great writer and filmmaker and uh, no, of what, of what would have been, I think. And I think it would have been interesting to see Matt Damon because it's been well over 20 years. Yeah. To see him revisit uh, the part, yeah, it would, uh, it would have been it would have been fascinating to see one of these every few years. It's like, and yeah, it it, it would have been great to have somebody like Mingella continue to make these movies because uh, Mingella was coming off of the English Patient. He did Cold Mountain after after this movie, and uh, let's see, let me bring up. His IMDb. So he did, uh, and then he did a movie in 2006 called Breaking and Entering. And he did an episode of a TV series, and that was that was it. Um, yeah. Before the English Patient, he did Mr. Wonderful, Truly, Madly, Deeply, and A Little Like Down- Drowning. And uh, oh. those were, yeah, he he had a very short career, but yeah, he he passed away in 2008, uh, and he was. He was a producer on the reader that came out that year. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it's 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 a shame because of the fact that it's like he he just is a really talented he was a really talented and meticulous uh, writer and director and yeah. storyteller. He was he was also a very distinguished playwright in the theater before um, you know getting into the movies. So he had just a catalog of uh, of many 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 wonderful uh, plays. And of course, there are friends I know who uh, the movie truly madly deeply uh, speaks to them in a very personal way. But uh, definitely a very very uh, talented writer and uh, filmmaker that uh, we lost too uh, we lost too early. Yeah. Um, and I do, I do want, you know, I brought up Peter very uh, briefly, the character played by Jack, uh, Davenport. Jack Davenport, who mm-hmm. uh, was best known later for the Pirates of the Caribbean movies. But um, he, he is really, it's, that is almost like, almost like the character of Meredith. It's just Peter becoming such an important character because of the fact that he becomes a confidant of uh, Marge's, but he also becomes romantically involved with Tom. Right. And it's and I I think you know as painful as and as brutal as uh, Tom's 
killing of Dicky is. I I think the the scene where the scene at the end with Peter just is and the way that Mangella tells that yeah. story in just really words more than anything and just watching uh Ripley at the you know in the aftermath of it is just so powerful. It it really tells how heartbreaking that that had to have been. Well, and the thing is, for the character of Tom, Tom, he had to do it. Yeah, he had he had to uh, of Peter. He had to do it because if he did, it, it's kind of like I mean, like closing a book on on you know on this aspect of uh, you know of the con. Yeah, and Peter Peter's a loose thread, mm-hmm. and um, that uh, I think it has to be you know like the, the con you know the con artist or sociopath you know they have to trust is always uh, they 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 cannot leave themselves vulnerable because you get caught when you're when you're vulnerable like that uh, when you're left vulnerable so yeah he was Peter was a loose end he loved him and uh, or loved him in Tom's way. Um, but, um, it had to happen and yeah. I, it's true. Like the way that, uh, that's an interesting thing about uh, this movie also, you know, movies these days with violence, um, the violence in, in the movie, like when it, it's, it's not grotesque. It's not, I mean, when the manner and how uh, Dickie is murdered, um, like it was like when he hit them with the oar hit him with the oar, like the slow progression of the slow, like just the way that that came out. Like it was, uh, it was still stylish or even how when with Freddie and then with Peter and all of that, it's just interesting that, you know, these days, like with violence, like I, I, I'm hypersensitive to ultra grisly violent. I just Mm -hmm. don't think it's, I just don't think it's necessary here though. It's, it was not, it was actually, as I guess tastefully done, like in a in a way that it uh, it was not grotesque, it was not unrealistic, it was not like you know a makeup designer wanting to show oh this is how we're going to show this guy's face exploding like in right. in countless uh, horror movies, but uh, it did when in the moment even when I when I first saw the movie when Dickie gets is murdered, the brutality of the aftermath like because he hit him and then you know when and tom just kept hitting him with the oar he just kept hitting him and just that and that was tom just trying to like just knock just like dickie's gone forever and i just have to i i have to stab out Mm -hmm. who tom ripley was and i'm gonna take on uh uh i'm gonna i'm dickie forever and just that was uh that's the impression that I got from watching that scene. And then of course, watching it again, just like uh, just the rage that, that yeah. was it within Tom. No, and this is, I mean, this is a very classically made thriller. I mean, it's something that, you know, even, even with the, uh, the brutality of the scenes with um, Dickie's death and then uh, Freddie's death later, like it would fit right into the fifties and sixties without yeah. being excessive. Yeah. And that's that's one of the things that's so great about what Mangella does here is because of the fact that he 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 understands that the uh 
the the impact and the violence is not the bloodshed. It's not it's it's the way that it's 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 just the brute force that we see Tom inflict this violence on. Yeah. And, I mean that's what makes Peter's death so much harder to to experience just because of the fact that it's sound and we don't see it but we know based on what we had seen we know what's happening we know what's going to happen and the fact that he he takes out peter the in a way that's really more empathetic i guess is the only way i could put it to the way he to the brutality of uh dickie and freddie's death i mean it really does point to the fact that he had genuine feelings for peter that ultimately were not there for dickie and freddie because with dickie you could tell that the way he treated other people was probably gang to tom and he felt like oh i can do this life so much better and freddie was just he he just was somebody. Freddie was in. Was in Freddie was in the way. Yeah. 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 I got the get the sense with with Peter that he was kind of putting him out of his misery. That like, I'm doing this so you don't have to find out who I really am. Yeah. 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 That's so, the impression that I got. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's I I think that's that's a very it's a very good it's a very fair reading of of that death. Um, now this this is I I've been wanting to I've been waiting to talk about this movie for this uh this this series because this even even though I it it's always been low key probably one of my favorite movies from that year and it's just because of the fact that it feels it feels so unique to that year because of the fact that in a year where a lot of people were just messing around with were messing around with form messing around with story structure this is one that is just very straightforward in the way it tells the story in a oh, yeah. story that is just anything but straightforward and and classic uh classic uh filmmaking style yeah uh, yeah we look at the films that we've discussed and the films that came out that year again like six cents i mean i mean with the comparison like i mean six cents in this film like two different attacks on suspense one's more psychological and one's more supernatural mm-hmm. but uh in, con- in considerable style and you know and just they're they're like paintings, like how they were like stitched and etched and put together. Um, and the same thing, you know, when you have, I mean, you you have, you have something like the Cider House Rules that also came out, where um, you take this John Irving novel and and it's and it's a very long novel and way to cut out all of it and just to add the style to that to tell this the story of. The Michael Caine character and 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 Tobey Maguire and Charlie Theron. I mean, it's just, again, it's just worth noting that in my mind, like 1999 was like one of the in recent history was one of the best years for uh, uh, movies. Yeah, yeah, and and I I think I think the talented Miss Ripley definitely stands up there with the uh, best of those movies, and I I do think it stands up there certainly with the best with the movies that you and I have covered from that year, American Beauty and the Insider, and how 
you you have filmmakers and actors who are just completely at the top of their game and um they're they're presenting challenging material and uh in ways that you know to a certain extent are kind of conventional kind of traditional but in other ways are um really make you uh think about the material as opposed to just experiencing it as a movie. You look at all of the movies that, I mean, those three movies, American Beauty, The Insider, and Talent of Mr. Ripley, all of them are really, really well-written, well-constructed scripts and just really good movies. Yeah. Um, the variety, I mean, and the thing about all of them no, no explosions, no CGI, mm -hmm. no special effects or anything. It's just performances, direction, cinematography, good script. Um, and we need, you know, we need a return to that. We need, yeah. and I mean, and that's the thing is with all of the, uh, and when Michael Caine won the Academy Award, I remember when his name was announced, I'm like, okay. but And it was one of those things where you, you look at the Academy Awards and like, any one of it was Michael Clark Duncan for the Green Mile, yeah. Haley Joel Osment for uh, the Sixth Sense. Uh, let's see, Michael Caine, of Tom course, Cruise. Tom Cruise for Magnolia, oh, yeah. and and Jude Law. Yeah. Any one of the any one of them could have uh, won the award. And Michael Caine, in his speech, more he complimented his nominees more than yeah. I think he was acknowledging. And of course, everything that he said came through Drew Law when has gone on to become uh, a big star. Tom Cruise, of course, uh I, I think he would give his eye teeth for another role like a Magnolia. Yeah. Um, but uh, he's doing fine. Tom Cruise, yeah. I mean, I, I think I mean I just I hope he's calmed down now. But but actually <laughs> but actually true. I want to I do want to say one thing about that, uh, you know, getting off topic here. Tom Cruise, like how he reacted what he did, I don't mind. I think maybe just the way. I yeah. think it's a kind of a thing where, but of course, things, emotions are are so tense right now mm -hmm. that, um, and you know, he is uh, on. He's number one on the call sheet on, on that film, and of course, one of the biggest movie stars in the world. You know, and I guess it happened again. I, I guess there was a second incident or i don't know i i don't i i thought i had heard read that there was a second incident but huh. you know it uh I, I i i listened to the recording and i thought it was i think his frustration was the frustration of every actor writer director screenwriter who cannot work now yeah and so i i applaud tom cruise for that i mean i don't i don't know if i would have I don't know. I would. I certainly would not like to have been on the receiving end of that, but uh, I, 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 I don't have a problem with what he, uh, what he did. No, and and yeah, I mean, it's it's one of those things where it's like it's Shh. even even as the vaccine starts to uh, get out with COVID. I mean, it's still going to even then. It's still going to take. A while for us to get back to some semblance of normal. After oh, sure. And, you know um, the the communal aspect of things. I mean, you know, people. 
you know, uh, the Broadway community, of course, they want to get back and they want to work and they want to entertain and, you know, sporting events and, you know, fans want to go. But um, it, it's it's going to take some time. I mean, yeah. the, the implementation of the vaccine is going to take some time. Um, and I think there is going to be a, a long, long period of people, even if they are vaccinated, like, Huh? Like, do I still want to go out? Because you know right. that 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 isolation that we have all experienced uh, for almost a year. That uh, it, it, you just can't snap your fingers. It's just not going to be over uh, overnight. Mm-hmm. And um, but I, I've always equated, you know, the United States. I've always equated us like a boxer. Or you know, we get knocked down and we get battered and beaten so many times mm-hmm. that, and we keep getting up. I mean, I think this. The fight that we are in now um, is a little different than I think what certainly our generation is is yeah. used to, but um, I, I I hope that uh, you know the people are up to the challenges because now we have over you know three hundred thousand people who are who are dead and it I don't think it needed to be like that I mean yeah. so you know but uh, but we do have to look forward um, to you know, change. I'm encouraged by the fact that we have a new administration who, even before they're going in, they're already, you know, putting things together to combat this. So, but I I think, you know, for me and my, you know, filmmakers and colleagues, like, you know, we, we keep saying, you know, like, yeah, we want to get back to work, but the time's just got to be right, you know, Mm -hmm. because, you know, I know, I mean, Robert Pattinson got sick, you know, from, and the Batman film, I think had to be shut down. And, you know, if, if a major movie like that, like a Batman movie with, you know, all of the, what they have at their disposal, if their, if their star can get sick, anybody can get sick. And so I think it's a lot of people like, you know, just, uh, just take the time. Now's the time to be with your families and, uh, enjoy, enjoy each other. Mm Mm-hmm. And enjoy some good movies too. Very, we've very we've been watching said. some good yes, movies. There 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 are some tremendous films coming out now in uh, this holiday season. And uh, with with that, thank you very much, Timothy, for joining me once again. Uh, I definitely look forward to the next time we uh, talk on the podcast. Absolutely, thank you, Brian, for having me. Always a pleasure. I'd like to thank Timothy J. Cox for joining me on the podcast. Um, we do have a few more. Episodes in the Class of 1999 series I hope to do in the next year or so to finally put a bow in on that uh, series, um, as well as some other individual uh, topics that I think will be pretty interesting to people. That's it for this episode of the Sonic Podcast. Uh, I hope everybody has had a safe and healthy holiday season. I know it's been a tough year. Hopefully 2021 will be better for everybody. And uh, check us out on patreon.com backslash Sonic Cinema. Subscribe to the podcast at Apple, Google, Spotify, or the Sonic Cinema Podcast YouTube channel. And uh, continue to watch out for uh, new reviews and discussions at www.sonicsfcinema.com. Thank you very much.